Today we have a conversation with James Finley, a legitimate Christian mystic in whose presence we feel the mercy, the love, and the forgiveness of God. Truly extraordinary stuff. Stay tuned. Welcome to Deep Transformation, Self, Society, Spirit, life-enhancing, paradigm-rattling conversations with cutting-edge thinkers, contemplatives, and activists with Dr. Roger Walsh and John Dupuy. Join us in the evolutionary fast lane as we take a deep dive into transformational practice, peak experience, profound understanding, powerful contribution. John Dupuy, it's Roger Walsh, my brother and my coworker and colleague on this podcast. We have a really, really special guest. Kind of miraculous how it all worked out. And I'm dear friends with a dear friend of his, Dr. Bob Weathers. He, he made the connection. And I've been for the last, I don't know, two months or so, I've been going through this deep spiritual process and initiation. And James became my companion on the way. I just fell into on the YouTube and his books and everything. Then I got the book in the mail and I'd forgotten that we were going to talk to him. So I'm into this process and I go, oh, you're talking to James in like three days. So anyway, I, I'm really opened and I've really been touched deeply by this man. And he is, uh, it's The Healing Path is a, a book, his audio autobiography that was just published. It's, it's really short, but it's still heavy. It's very, very open. It's very sacred. It's very honest. It's very painful. And it's ultimately deeply, deeply initiatory and inspiring. So I recommend it that you get the book healing path. James grew up in an abused household. He ended up spending six years in Gethsemane, I believe was the, the name of the monastery, was under the tutelage of Thomas Merton, whose work he has continued to bring forth into the world in a very powerful and deeply wise way. Became a psychotherapist and worked with people deeply traumatized, as in, it's in the book in his own case, and brought together the spiritual dimension, the transcendent dimension of spirit and God with psychotherapy and healing. What a mix. So I think that I could say a lot more, but I'll spare us. But James, brother, thank you so much for being here. It's wonderful to see you again. And John, I'm going to I'm jump in. You, you're so enthusiastic. You've been so immersed in James's work for these couple of months. You forgot to give his full name. So this is, I'll give the, I'll give the full, full titles, etc. Dr. James Finlay who is all of what John said, and a psychotherapist, spiritual therapist. And he's the author of, uh, and the book John was referring to, The Healing Path, is his memoir. But he is also author of the book Merton's Palace of Nowhere, which is a really exquisite spiritual account. And so with the formalities, adding to John's <laughs> John's enthusiasm, here we are. James, welcome. Thank you. Such a gift to be with you. And gosh, we're so many places to start. Now that I've jumped in, John, did you, there was a place you want to start? Because otherwise I can just keep going. No, you can keep going, Roger. I love it when you go. Well, James, you've been one of the integrate, one of the integrators of one of the, one of the key movements of our time. And that is, this is the first time we have the world spiritual traditions together. It's the first time we have a, a thriving psychology and psychotherapy. And you've been bringing those together in a very intimate way with your kind of spiritual psychotherapy. Perhaps you could just tell us 
you know, there are multiple schools. There's transpersonal psychology, which has been more bringing the world's traditions and Eastern traditions together in a synthesis. There's been the grand synthesis of Ken Wilber with his integral psychology and integral spirituality, psychosynthesis, economy. There are all these schools, but please tell us a little about your particular, the way you bring these two worlds together. For me, I, I think that, uh, you know, I grew up in this home, oldest of six children, and my father was a violent alcoholic. My mother was a devout Catholic. And I could tell growing up her faith was for what she held on to, the kind of gave her the courage to stay with all the things that were happening. And she encouraged us to do the same. And I did from a very young age. I just turned to God in a sincere way and, and experienced God responding to me or merging with me in a kind of a oneness. And uh, that did sustain me. I was very dissociative. I was very traumatized through all of it. And then when I was in the ninth grade, uh, and all of this, I was, I was, I attended it at the time. It was an all boys Catholic high school, Archbishop Open High School. And, uh, the instructor mentioned monasteries. I had never heard of monasteries before. And he described monasteries as places where people go to seek and find and give themselves to God, who's completely given to us in every breath and heartbeat and believing that search for God, that it touches the whole world in ways we don't understand. And he mentioned Thomas Merton. I never heard of Thomas Merton before. And at 28 years old, Thomas Merton gave up a promising career in literature and entered this cloistered monastery. He wrote his autobiography, The Seven Story Mountain, which won on the New York Times bestsellers list. So that day after school, I went up to the school library. They had one book by Merton, The Sign of Jonas, which is a diary he kept in the monastery, a journal. And on the first page of that book, Thomas Merton says of himself, he says, as for me, I have but one desire, the desire for solitude to disappear into the secret of God's face. And at 14, I didn't know what it meant, but something in me did. I said, me too. Like the, the depth and sincerity where his words came from touched that place in me. And I got my own copy of the sign of Jonas. And for the four years of high school, the violence got worse. I just read that over and over and over in, in my in my prayer and, and so on. So during that time, I then felt I was I, I wanted to go to the monastery. And my dream was to sit at Merton's feet and have him guide me into the secret of God's face, kind of this mystical lineage. And I went uh, and uh, right day after I graduated from high school. And I stayed there for six years as a cloistered silent Trappist monastery, chanting the Psalms and simplicity manual labor. And it had a very profound effect on me. It really did. And then I was graced to have Thomas Merton, his novice master, to guide me. And then he introduced me to the mystics, the classical texts of the mystics, Teresa of Avila and John of the Cross, caught of unknowing Meister Eckhart, and so on. So when I left the monastery, I, I wanted to continue living a contemplative way of life in the world. And in that effort, I got married, which ended in divorce for my first marriage. I had two children by that marriage. And in the midst of that marriage, I was teaching religion in a Catholic high school and writing high school religion textbooks, co-authoring with a co colleague of mine, Jesus in you and your faith in you and Christian morality in you. And I wrote Merton's Palace of Nowhere. And it's all about Merton's insight and the classical understanding of ultimate identity beyond the ego our life hidden with Christ and God before the origins of the universe. 
and how to find our way to the true self and live by it. And when that book came out, I began to get invitations to lead silent contemplative retreats in the United States and Canada. And so I would travel around leading this retreat. So one of the very first person who invited me was a clinical psychologist. He told me at the end of the retreat, he said, if I would commit myself to the contribution that the contemplative traditions make to mental health, he would see to it that I could have a PhD in clinical psychology as a gift with family support, not as a loan. And so I moved with my wife at the time and two young children from Cleveland, Ohio, to Pasadena, California, and the, the School of Psychology at Fuller Theological Seminary. And it was five years of full-time clinical work, and I specialized in trauma. And I was giving retreats locally, also these silent retreat meals are in silence and so on. So a lot of the people started coming to me for therapy. They wanted to work through their trauma and they wanted their spirituality to be a resource in their therapy. And at the same time, a lot of people on the silent retreats would come to me one-on-one -on, -one on the retreats and say, and the unguarded vulnerability of meditation suffering arises. So I started experimenting with this place where trauma and the presence of God touch each other. And looking at it as very precarious because the, the intensity of the trauma can close off experiential access, not just to the divine, but to ourself. What can also happen is out of the broken places, a light can shine through, a transformative light. So at the end of therapy, it's not just symptom reduction. One would hopefully it would be that. But the, the person would say at the end, you know, something happened in here, in this therapy something that no one can ever take away from me, See, that I matter, that my life has a value that cannot be calculated, has a boundaryless dimension. And so that became my life, really, both within myself and in the people that I saw, this kind of, uh, I call it the, 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 how, to, how to be healed from all that hinders us from experiencing the steady, strong currents of divinity that flow on and on in the bittersweet alchemy of our lives and how to find a language for that, or a place where it's safe to go there and walk through it. The Buddhists speak about walking through the middle of the flames and discovering that it's raining in there. That's been it for me. It's been a very personal, ongoing. There's a major thunderstorm going on in my neck of the woods here. So if you hear, that's probably just God saying amen to everything you're saying. <laughs> but anyway, if you're hearing that, that's because that's what's going on here in Utah. That's great. That's good. You know, I've, I've been deeply immersed in your work and, and in your story. And when we talked a few days ago, and I, I brought this up, but in the book, you know, you talk about your, the horror that you were exposed to with your father, okay? And then you went to the monastery and you were just there as a, a simple monk or something. Then you, you wrote a paper or answers to a question on a, a course that you were involved with. And the guy said, hey, check this out. This guy should be, you know, for priesthood, it's obviously, and you probably at that point was the first reflection you got back that you were actually pretty brilliant. That must have been a real eye opener. But at the in the monastery, you are also also sexually abused, and you're extremely abused by your father. You don't talk about it in the book, but when you left the monastery, you went home and you confronted your father. He said, "Never happened. You're full of crap." And and eventually he said, "Yeah, it happened. All the abuse. I'm sorry." And he went with you to the monastery. And but what the, the the question I'm trying to get here, and one of the emphasis in, in Christianity, maybe that you don't, I don't find in other traditional past is forgiveness. Okay. 
And I grew up Catholic. A lot of us, millions of us around the world have been deeply offended by, you know, all the sins against children by the church and have stepped outside of the fold. You were, you know, ha- had such a opportunity to, to, to say to hell with it, but you stayed with the tradition. So there must have been, I'm just imagining maybe it's your direct contact with God that allowed you to transcend that. But how did that work for you in forgiving, or if you did, this person that abused you and your horribly abusive, really damaged father? And and is that necessary? And what how how does forgiveness play into our, our healing process as individuals and our awakening process to be able to not cut ourselves off from from God? Yes, I I just respond to the magnitude of what you're asking has all these dimensions to it. And we'll just dialogue about it. Yes. It's, a, it's a core question really that's at the heart of all of this. There's a, one of the books that influenced me. I can't think of their name right now. It was about, it was written by psychotherapists with therapists on trauma, healing of trauma. And they talk about anger. And they say that anger is the God-given emotion that restores the boundary that was violated. So anger is not rage. Anger is not revenge. Anger is not violent. Anger sets a boundary. I will not passively allow you to treat me or talk to me in ways that's less than the way I deserve to be treated, you know, as as the dignity of a human being like this. So there is healing without forgiveness, but there's no healing without anger. As, until you set the boundary, the anger that I'm talking about, setting nonviolent resistance, like Gandhi, to overcome the enemy with self-suffering, self-suffering, sincerity, and truth. You know, Dr. Martin Luther King. Richard Rohr says, uh, the word nice isn't even in the Bible. Jesus never said, blessed are the nice. Jesus often wasn't nice, but he was always truthful and grounded in the love. And so there has, and the reason this boundary is so important is a traumatized, childlike part of the self that still lives inside of you won't believe you if you keep passively going along with people that that are, are abusive to you. So you have to bear witness to the anger. But then, find, because if you forgive before you set the boundary, the unacknowledged anger will leak out sideways as passive-aggressive behavior, self-loathing, addiction, and so on. But standing in the clear-mindedness of anger, you're not completely free until you forgive. You're not completely free until you forgive. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Because when love touches suffering, the suffering turns the love into mercy. This oceanic mercy. So that sense, I like the contemplative reading of the Gospels and the Psalms and, and the reading of the mystics became so kind of central to me. I guess in my own my own collusion with you know so for example with the sexual abuse at the monastery, I fled by the, this violence from my home. When I graduated from high school, I went out and asked my father if I could join the monastery, and he was very anti-Catholic. He was, a lot of their arguments, is he, he and his mother were about Catholicism, and he said he wanted to know what a, I, I, he wanted to know what a monastery was. I explained it as best I could. And he said, if you go to that place, he said, I'll kill your mother. He said, and that's not a threat, that's a promise. I'll kill her if you go. I walked away and I left the next day. I was used to that. So that's what I left. 
So when I went to the monastery, like refuge, I saw it as, as safe, among other things. It was deep, beautiful, and it was the first time in my life I felt safe. And I think Thomas Brunner was like a father figure to me and so on. So this monk then, who was my confessor, everyone saw him as an ideal monk. When he sexually abused me, I, I, I didn't know I had a right. He was a priest. I didn't know I had a right to say no to that. I didn't believe, I, di I didn't know there was a place in me that had a right to say no to that. And yet I could tell that I was being passive in a way that I was in collusion with it. And so I decided to engage in active waiting. Active waiting is a stance which is not passivity like indifference, but you wait until the moment the grace is given to set the boundary with God's grace, you'll set it. I, I did that. The, the priest and I were talking, and he said, we were talking about my future in the monastery. And he said to me, he said, you probably will. You'll go on and take solemn vows till death. And you'll get ordained to the priesthood. You probably will be allowed to go to Rome for further studies. I wanted to study under Bernard Larnigan in Rome, the contemplative epistemology of Larnigan. And then he said to me, and then when you come back, you and I can pick up where we left off in our very special friendship. No one will know. And the voice inside said, he's not going to let us go. And I went into a deep depression. I became deeply paranoid because I lost refuge. I lost refuge. And I left. I didn't tell Thomas Merton. I didn't tell the abbot. I didn't tell John Hughes Bamberger, who was a psychiatrist, who was a monk at the monastery. I just left, came back home, and dropped out of the church, and lived with shame that I didn't set the boundary. Until later, I was able to find help uh, to find the boundary and to understand why I couldn't set the boundary, like experiential self knowledge to walk to walk my walk, the wreckage of the past, uh, with mercy and clarity and honesty and so on. So uh, that's been my story, you know, of it. And then I think the same thing when I would work with people in trauma, they would be seeing me. When they felt the alliance was safe enough to be vulnerable in front of me, they would, they would share their rage or their fear or their self-cutting, whatever it is they were doing. And then they would say, I hate this about myself. And that's the issue. We catch ourselves in the act perpetuating violence on the part of us that needs to be loved the most. The part that's ritualistically reenacting the internalized hurt as a survival strategy. And until we find a safe place to understand it, to see it, look at it, accept it, and walk through it, and find a more reality-based way to, to walk through that, that's a lot of what's so deep about the progress. And trust of recovery, a lot of it is about that. When you really look at the fearless inventory and walking the walk and amends and 11th step and so on. So I think this is the depth dimension of the healing encounter, this liberation, transformative path. And then once we come through that, it's a lifelong process. Then once we come through it, we realize that everyone is a variation of this. Everyone is an infinitely loved, broken person. And they're walking around thinking they are what's wrong with them. And so if we, sometimes you can tell, you get a sense you're in the presence of someone who's more present to you than you are. And sometimes you feel they can see a value in you you're not yet able to see. And you either have to conclude you're tricking them, see, or you can start to believe in their belief in you. And little, you can be reparented 
in love and little by little by little it can arc over and you can find your footing in yourself to walk through the pain and understanding and i think that's the intimacy of the journey it's another kind of follow-up question to that obviously you were able to, you didn't blame what happened on the church you were able to forgive the church and your father apparently and this priest and i'm just saying that because i don't think you could be the person that i've seen and known and speaking to right now if you were still held on to a lot of of rage and in some way transmute that that righteous rage if you will and into into something else and is that something and i'm talking about somebody who's, who's worked you know i've dealt with forgiveness and the lack of it and i don't find that i can do it myself there's some things that are so deep i just it's got to be grace i think i'm making progress but it seems like something that's just gradually you know, like a sandcastle on the beach, wave after wave eventually dissolves it and it just goes back to the ocean. And uh, how is that in your case? And maybe what can you tell us for those of us who are hanging on to something that we cannot, not that we don't want to let go of, to forgive? Well, here's my sense of it, what helps me when I see this. Is, you know, I want to take the church first, not the church. You're right, I realize the church didn't do this to me. You know, monastic life didn't do this to me. The community didn't do this to me. This person did this to me. But but I so identified with the church as a monk. And when I left, I left the church. You know, I just couldn't abide it. I couldn't see how God could buy into an outfit like this, really. What saved me, really, I was in the beginning of this dysfunctional marriage, and I still wanted to keep this connection with the divine. And so I get up early, and Thomas Merton introduced me to Zazen, to the to the dharma and i'd read the buddhist sutras and he also introduced me to yoga namaste the deep yoga practice and it became a refuge for me and then when i was sitting there on the floor with the candle burning reading the sutras and doing the sitting i started reading thomas merton out loud in the same way that i would read a zen koan and the depth and beauty i i found my way back in to mystical catholicism i found my way back into the mystical depth dimension of this, uh, this infinitely love broken community. So with regard to the church, I didn't blame the church, but at the same time, the church, what, what came out about all this pandemic level of sexual abuse in the clergy is the church's very inadequate and dishonest understanding of sexuality. Really. And it's come a long way with that. It has a long way to go. And there's a lot of culpability in that. There, there's still people in the church. If it wasn't for lawsuits and everything, they'd still be doing it. Really, they'd still be doing it. But there's also clergy that are deeply upset about this. They're not part of it at all, and they're working on it. And it's an ongoing. So that's a process like that. So I forgive the church, but also I the importance of them to continuing to make amends and continuing to do the inventory and look at it and then act on those insights about sexuality and celibacy and all of that. Also with my father, for a long time, I, I forgave my father in the light of this mercy, but I didn't forgive him for what he did. I didn't forgive him for what he did. And it wasn't until just within the last year, actually. For the very first time, I realized that after I came home, got married, and he and I would talk, he said he wanted me to take him down to the monastery. And so we drove from Akron, Ohio, down to Louisville, saw the monastery he sat with this listened to the monks chanting we walked in the woods the farms and we never once mentioned the abuse at home 
We never once said, talked about, remember you said you'd kill my mother if I came? I didn't say, and he didn't say he was sorry either. But I realized in his own broken way, he was an alcoholic, severe alcoholic, in his own way, coming down there to me was him saying he was sorry. And so not only did I forgive him, but I've forgiven him for what he did. And how was that when you were walking? I, it was strange because uh, in a way, I, I was still going through my own therapy. I was still very dissociative. I was still very dissociative. So I was... I wasn't, until I left my marriage and met Maureen, which I talk about in my memoir, and she was very strong in her own AA recovery. I realized that he was still drinking, he was still an alcoholic. He he didn't have the inner resources to say that he was sorry. He couldn't articulate it. And I was still so dysfunctional. I hadn't been through my therapy yet. I was told, I couldn't say it either. But that was his nonverbal way of saying he was sorry. And once I consciously saw this was just in the last year, actually, I was able to interiorly then be true to myself and forgive not just him, but forgive him for what he did. I did. And I thought too, then still thought too, I want to add something at this point, which is at the heart of all of this for me. Let's say so far, we're talking about this as layers of interior healing psychologically. Through, through insight, forgiveness, and anger, and boundaries, and all that, the reality of that. But where faith comes in, where faith comes in, is the whole issue isn't my ability to forgive my father, not forgive my father, forgive me. It's rather the deep realization that my deep acceptance of my inability to forgive meets God infinitely forgiving me in my inability to forgive. That is, my inner peace isn't dependent on my ability to measure up to it. Like, am I holy yet? Am I holy yet? I'm trying. I can't get past it. But rather, to have my the felt sense of the nature of my situation, that I can't attain it, but it attains me in my deep acceptance of my inability to attain it. I'm overtaken by mercy and carried along by mercy unexplainably, which is salvation. Having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps like this. And that's where I think the spiritual touches the, the, the point of this. And that's what I mean by the alchemy of it all. But I think that's the important part. I think that's the contribution of it. And I want to say something else, too, about this. Sure. Sometimes religion is intended to be a language for this like Torah and the prophets, the gospel, all, all these t traditions, Quran, all the traditions. Sometimes people use religion to contribute to the obstacle to this. You know, they hide in the religiosity. They use religiosity to endorse and shame other people. They, uh, so we're trying to get past the distortions of religiosity into the depth that we're talking about now. This is abyss-like mercy. This abyss-like, it's like a, it's like an abyss-like infinite presence is pouring itself out and giving itself away in and as the gift and the miracle of our very presence, the presence of others and of all things in our nothingness without God. He is being touched, you know, by the God-given godly nature of every breath and heartbeat standing up and sitting down as a quickening in our heart and then learning to live by that learning to live by that. And, uh, and you know, that you can call that mystical sobriety or salvation, whatever. So in therapy, then, a person 
is they they get help in finding the death dimension where they've been touched that way, either in the arms of the beloved or in reading a childhood goodnight story or in the pause between two lines of a poem or lying in the dark listening to their breathing or, or praying at the quiet hour at day's end. But what are the moments in which the, the reverberations of a depth of presence, sometimes it's extremely powerful, can change your life. Usually it's extremely subtle, very, very subtle. So when a person is going through the therapy and they're struggling with the therapy, the art form is backing off, getting regrounded in that depth dimension, not to keep going in the other direction, but to draw from that abyss-like depth of mercy, the courage to return to the hurting place, to touch it with love that it might dissolve in love. And that ability to keep moving back and forth like this, because when we touch the hurting place with love, some of the pain that we touch flows through the touch of love back into us. And we realize we're getting re-traumatized. And, and so we have to back off in order to get regrounded again. That's why God is a presence that protects us from nothing, even as God unexplainably sustains us in all things. And I back off to be unexplainably sustained in renewal of that, to draw up from it the courage and the wisdom to return back to do love's work by touching the hurting place. That applies to myself intrapersonally, but also applies, it makes community possible. See, how can I be present to other people this way? Because each person I meet is an infinitely loved, broken person. And how can, how can I learn to be with and for others? No. I had a massive heart attack seven years ago, maybe five years ago, six years ago. And I almost died. I happened to be at a place where there was a Catholic hospital that they were a cardiac unit and they saved my life. God bless them. But looking back, I think, you know, if I want to look for a psychosomatic reason, I think it was woundedness from things that had happened to me and the, still the hurt and the anger that I still held with that. And I felt that really, you know, it was, ah, it was really there. And, and and I think I think it's going away. But one of the things I've also seen is when you have an encounter with God, Spirit, you know, one of these moments of God's allness, God's incredible lovingness, it puts our little personal human wounds in some kind of perspective. You know that the the goodness of it or the mystery of God is so enormously infinite that our our suffering somehow gets down to a perspective where. We can really make choices about it and let go. At least that's kind of what it feels like in in, in my my journey to to uh, redeeming myself and others. Now I want to say this back. This is another important point. I think turning I call it the axial moment, the turning moment. That if, let's say let's say first of all, let's say there are these moments in life, and this depth dimension. Like like, why do I worry so the way I sometimes do? There's a self evident sense of sacredness or preciousness and so on. And sometimes they can wash over us in moments of blessedness, like moments of love and intimacy and caring and joy. But sometimes it can unexpectedly shine forth out of tragedy like this. You know, it just shines forth. And so it, it goes like this. And then when it's actually happening, it's, it's too self-evident to doubt, too deep to comprehend. You're being intimately overtaken by the nearness of the unexplainable. Like this. So the moment passes, you, know, you return back to your life. But then there's this question. See, the question then is, I will not break faith with my awakened heart in my most childlike hour, 
in the arms of the beloved as I was at death's door and the sorrow where I just lost everything. Something was given to me there. And furthermore, I intuit that in that moment of awakening, it wasn't that something more was given to me, but rather in that moment, I momentarily glimpsed the infinity of mercy that's always being given to me, standing up and sitting down in this very moment. And therefore, I experienced a longing to abide in the depths so fleetingly glimpsed. See what? And that's the path. See, it's yes. the path of longing, which is really an echo of God's infinite longing for us. So what is, that's what these mystics teach, all these paths. What is the path, the daily rendezvous with God, the quiet hour, vulnerability? What is the path along which I can be healed from all that hinders me from experientially living in the plenitude of mercy that is the reality, the immediacy of every moment of my life? And, and where can I find someone well-seasoned in such things who can guide me? And this is where I think it's such a gift to discover the spiritual teachings. You know, the depth dimension recovery or the Dharma or the Sufi, I mean, whatever the tradition is. For me, it was the monastery. And then I say to myself, this is Richard Rohr to the Living School. When I left the monastery, I discovered in order to live this way, in the monastery, every aspect of the life is intended to nurture and protect what we're talking about. The silence, the prayer, the psalms, the poverty of spirit. Out here in the world, it's not like that. We live in a world, I think the impression I have, we get in the momentum of the day's demands, we feel we're skimming across the surface of the depths of our own life. We're suffering from depth deprivation. Wow, that's a that's a profound concept, James. I haven't heard depth de deprivation, but yes. Yeah, because yes. when we drop down into the deeper place, it's not an intrusion. We belong there. It's actually homecoming. It's actually an actual kind of a homecoming. And also God's unexplainable oneness with us is hidden in the depths over which we're skimming. You know, the, the, the depths are infinite and boundaryless. So having tasted, yeah, I, I have tasted, I will not play the cynic. I will not break faith with my awakened heart. Therefore, how can I set out on a path? First of all, how can I learn to trust the moments where I'm, where I'm fleetingly quickened? Like that there are these moments. And how to see that the light that shines off from those moments illumines this path. And this is the path of healing. And I hold it's also the depth dimension of the healing path of psychotherapy. The foundations of trauma, trauma means a wound. The foundations of trauma, like where's all this trauma coming from? These traumatizations, great and small. They're not found in the traumatizing things that can and sometimes do happen to us as human beings. The foundations of trauma aren't found there. The foundations aren't found in how we've internalized those traumatizations and ritualistically act them out as symptoms. The, the root foundation is the traumatized capacity to habitually abide in the infinite abyss-like depth that's welling up and giving itself to us unexplainably in every breath and heartbeat. So as I learn to heal that depth dimension, I, I draw up from it the strength and the courage and the light to guide me along the horizontal line of touching the hurting places in my body, my mind, this all things considered. What's the most loving thing I can do now for my body, my mind, this person, this relationship, this community, this plant, this animal? 
And so the, the horizontal dimension in our passage through time is intersected by a vertical depth dimension of the infinite. And the infinite is welling up and giving itself to us in and as the horizontal dimension. The, in and as the divinity of standing up and sitting down. And I know it's true because in a fleeting moment, I tasted it. Thomas Merton once said, he said, the most important things in life, he said, there are certain things in life we simply have to accept as true or we go crazy inside. And they're the very things we can't explain to anybody, including ourselves. Dan Walsh in metaphysics class, medieval philosophy, he said, I know it, I know it, I know that I know it. The trouble is, it's I who know that I know it. And when I try to tell you what it is that I know that I know, I can't think. It's not a fact. See, but although I can't say it, I can I can bear witness to it. My own broken way that the light is shining out through the broken places of my heart, deeply accepted, and I can learn to live that way and share it with other people. And and you transmit it in a nonverbal way too. You, you do. Know? You do. I mean, that, that's that's what brings it all alive. You know, the, the spirit itself that comes through when you. On, on this journey and you've come back. John of the Cross in his love poetry, he talks about being held a prisoner by a hair that flutters on the neck of the beloved. That <laughs> lovers know there's no such thing as a little thing. The sideways glance, the tone in the voice, the touch, uh, a, a silence that's actually a respectful silence that doesn't intrude upon the space that you need to find the words to say something. It really is. It's, it's a, and that's why I think psychotherapy at this level is meditation for two. It's meditation for two. Two people are in synchronous kind of together like this. This is the community. Yeah. Well, there's so much in what you've said, James. And I just, want to touch, I just want to name a few of them to give them emphasis and so they don't get lost. First, the the emphasis you laid on acceptance and forgiveness, so a certain stage, and then often it's an initial stage of healing, one to whatever extent we can to accept our limitations and whatever reactions we're having, and not add to add to the the pain by condemning ourselves for having whatever our responses are. That it's it's kind of counterintuitive in a lot of ways, but it's so crucial. And you mentioned the. Uh, there's a na technical name for this in psychology, but I can't remember it. The, the almost universal or, or so widespread tragic belief that I'm the only one who's broken. Yeah. So many people wandering around thinking other people have it together. There's something, not only am I broken, there's something wrong with me that I'm the only one who's, who's suffering in this way. You mentioned in forgiveness the, that there's a, a time and a place for anger. And, and you implied this, but I want to bring it out that the forgiveness first is a very profound practice, and it also goes through stages. It's and a certain stage, it's appropriate to be in anger. It's a certain stage, it's appropriate to acknowledge one was badly victimized. And there's also a time when those have to be let go. People can get stuck in the role of victim. People can get stuck in the role of righteous anger. So holding forgiveness as a developmental process. You mentioned the many ways that religion can be used. It can be used in defense, defensively to, to bolster the ego, or it can be used to, in the transcendence of ego. And you mentioned, and I want to ask you this, I thought I heard you say 
I think it, it sounds very profound of the separation as the primary trauma. So uh, there's a lot there, but you said a lot. I just wanted to name those. Well, thank, you, oh, thank you for doing that. Thank you. Because you can see this language is subtle. Do I mean it's very, so repetition is not redundant. And by going over and sitting with it, going over and sitting with it, walking with it, like that. So I'd like to say something about this broken, like the broken off, the root trauma, the root broken place. Here's an example that I use. This is the end of the first part of our conversation with James Finley. And if you've gotten this far, I know you're going to want to stay tuned for the second part, which is coming out next week. God bless you guys. See you there. Today's episode was brought to you by iWake Technologies. Visit the Deep Transformation website to find out more about iAwake's audio tools designed to wake us up, grow us up as a part of our daily deep transformational practice. Thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the Deep Transformation podcast, and we greatly appreciate your comments, suggestions, and questions. Thank you for all you are and all you do. From John, Roger, and the Deep Transformation team.